It's the Progress Pod, a production of the Franklin County Coalition for Progress. I'm Pete Mazzoni with Jeremy Kate, and on today's show, we're going to discuss perspectives on student inequality, mobility, and opportunity here in Franklin County and throughout Pennsylvania. Our guests are Joe Podasik, the current but soon-to-be outgoing superintendent of the Chambersburg Area School District, and Erica Kitzmiller. Dr. Kitzmiller is a graduate of Chambersburg Public Schools, where she's been doing research on this subject for the past two years. She's a faculty member at Teachers College Columbia University and a non-resident fellow at Harvard University's Hutchins Center. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. No problem. Let's get started with your research. Let's just get right into it. And what was the impetus for uh, engaging this project? Well, I would say the immediate impetus was a trip home that I took in the summer of 2016. And I was telling Pete, and I told Joe the story a long time ago, that I was sitting in my parents' basement with my then three and one-year-old, and I wanted to go to a bookstore um, in Chambersburg. And my mom laughed at me. Hi, mom. And um, she (laughs) said, where where do you think you are? Um, And so I was really interested in thinking about the ways in which bringing up kids in rural America is different. And then also the 2016 election, um, probably I would say the aftermath of that election, um, I was listening to Rachel Maddow's program, and she was talking about Tom Cotton's um, like area in Arkansas, um, where residents were very upset about the Affordable Care Act, and she seemed baffled by this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got very frustrated and was venting to my husband about the fact that I feel like people in urban America just don't understand rural poverty and inequality. Mm-hmm. And he turned to me and said, you have an opportunity. You're from rural America, so why don't you go home? So I came home, and <laughs> Joe gave me access to the high school, and uh, Brad Ocker has welcomed me with a red carpet. I feel very fortunate to, to be home doing this work. Describe what the study, its purpose, and what it set out to do, and other details. Sure. So, I mean, the purpose is pretty simple. The purpose is to get people where I live and where I work aware of rural poverty and to get folks at home aware of it. I think that inequality looks very different in rural America. As I was leaving Penn Station, um, I was thinking about this. Poverty in urban America is very visible. You can see it. Um, Every public space I go in, there's homeless people. There are people asking for money every time I go on the subway. And so poverty is really in your face. Mm -hmm. Um, In rural America, poverty exists everywhere, um, but it's not as visible. So I wanted to make it visible um, through the stories of kids. And I worry a lot about the plight of young Americans, um, thinking about the opportunities I had as a kid going to school here and how those opportunities have been eroded across the nation because of things like how expensive college costs, how expensive childcare costs um, mm-hmm. for young parents, how expensive it is to buy a car in Chambersburg. And so I wanted to give people a context that um, if you're trying to go to college and you're the first one in your family to do so, like I was, it looks really different here than it does in Philadelphia or New York City, where I now live and, and do research. So I wanted just to shed light on that. So what are some of the things you've learned? Well, I've, I've learned a ton uh, from the students. Um, from one of the students I interviewed, um, again, who wanted to go to college, he wanted to go visit a technical school in Lancaster. Mm-hmm. Getting to Lancaster when you don't have a car and you want to visit a technical school that's not a, like is not accessible via the train is really hard. Um, my kids in Philly go to high schools across the street from Temple. They go to high schools where they pass the Community College of Philadelphia. So um, 
I've learned that like resources are really hard to access when you don't have money, mm-hmm. um, which I think I took for granted as a kid. My parents took me to D.C. They took me to Baltimore. They took me to Philadelphia. I knew what colleges looked like because I went to Dickinson College every week for cello and voice lessons. Mm-hmm. So I was on a college campus every week. Um, and I'm not saying everyone has to go to college, but that's just one example of, of, of the challenges for resources. Mm-hmm. I've learned that the IB program teaches kids how inequality operates really well. Like kids have an amazing <laughs> grasp on what, a what program? The international baccalaureate program yes. okay. I don't know Joe if you want to talk about that but yeah, tell us a little bit it's, about it's that. an 11th 12th grade program at the high school and uh, it's basically uh, suited for students who are uh, it, it's another program that the liberal arts colleges really ideally like candidates from mm-hmm. I describe it as a Montessori high school Montessori education children basically uh, have to write everything that they learn and then they're graded by their peers internationally Interesting. And the teachers are all trained uh-huh. by their peers from other countries. So we have a core of eight teachers at the high school, and they do a great job. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of work. People think it's for the top bright child. It really is for the child who wants to work hard and overachieve. Mm-hmm. We started it several years ago, and it's been somewhat on life support, but there's more and more support for it. Now, is that and, a resources issue? Uh, because of life support? Yeah. No. It can be. It, yes and no. The bottom line is the reason it's on life support is getting the students to do it because they have to be hardworking right. and they have a lot of. They have to do a lot of work, and the work ethic is not until they get into it. Understand that you know you've got a lot of writing here to do, and then you have to grade your peers' work. And there's just a lot of and there's projects that need done. Mm-hmm. So where it comes to an equity issue is if we don't have the numbers in there, the board's going to say you know why are we spending this extra fifty or hundred thousand for this program? Mm-hmm. So that's the. Okay, very good. That's why I say that. But right. it's a shining example of like what I wish I had when I was at Caches and also mm-hmm. how inequality operates in rural America because there are kids from low-income backgrounds and all races in that program. Mm-hmm. And so it's this like microcosm of a space where students are really pushed to articulate their opinions and ideas about the world around them. Um, they definitely have to be hardworking and they have to have, you know, as I would say, chutzpah in terms of like they have to have something about them that's going to like motivate them to do it, but they also have to be really inquisitive. And the thing that I find so remarkable about how Having, growing, having grown up here and now that I'm back is just the diversity of perspectives. That kids in, at Caches, particularly in that IB program, can talk across political differences in ways that students in Philadelphia cannot. Um, because in Philadelphia, it's just a much more monolithic kind of political world. And so I think that's really fascinating to me to think about how students themselves are doing that, but that they're also finding spaces that we didn't have when I was growing up. Right? I graduated in 1996, so I've talked to students who are using Twitter as like a space where they have a private Twitter group and they're having conversations about um, what they believe the world around them should look like um, right. outside of Franklin County, but also inside Franklin County. That is so incredible and so inspiring. But you're inspiring. also bringing into play something that in 1996 wasn't what it is today. No, absolutely. the internet. Right, absolutely. But also I think that um, from where I sit on 112th Street and Broadway, people worry about like the local media sources and things like that in rural America, right? And yet students are finding ways to tap into the knowledge that they want. And that, I think, is why I work with youth, right? So in many ways, the IB program represents what the very best in education because it's giving kids opportunities that they might not otherwise have had. And kids of all different varieties. Like, it is incredible. Whereas if I worked, you know, I mean, I live in New York City and Stuyvesant High School, which is the premier exam school in New York City, only admitted eight black students in a class of 900, I believe it was 900. Um, 
that's embarrassing and outrageous, right? And in the IB right. program in Chambersburg, there's much more diversity, particularly socioeconomically and racially. And so like listening to the ways in which students have grown from that is just a reminder about why things like integration are so important, but also why giving kids access to that knowledge and a platform where they can articulate their opinions, which not all kids in Cassius can do, but in the IB program that is central to the work that the now, students do. That, those numbers seem inverted. We're more integrated with the IB program here than the most prestigious high school in Brooklyn, I think you mentioned. Well, it's yeah, it's in Manhattan. I mean, the one thing that's interesting about rural inequality is that there was a study, and I, I hate being like the name dropper, but there's this really interesting study by Raj Shetty, who's an economist at Harvard, and he actually said that mobility and opportunity is greatest in rural America. And so I think a lot about that study when I think about the IB program, because I've never seen a program that looks that racially and socioeconomically diverse mm-hmm. in urban America at the top, right? And so um, just thinking about like what's happening in New York City right now is embarrassing and it's not just Stuyvesant all the exam schools are having like the numbers do not even like closely match um, and I think we could have more black students in the IB program right. but there are like first generation sons and daughters of immigrants in that program who without that opportunity they, they wouldn't be going to college and they wouldn't they wouldn't have the opportunity to articulate their ideas and opinions which is actually more important to me than where they're going to college uh, it's just a different space for students to explore ideas and to debate and articulate what they think. Do you get information about family backgrounds? Because the one component Mm -hmm. here you addressed personally, that your parents took you to cello lessons, they took you to D.C. So that structure was there saying, this is valuable. Mm -hmm. Keep pursuing this. Our family values this, so you're going to learn to value it. Do you get information or feedback about that? I do. I mean, I would say that my family didn't value it. I had this like random inquisitiveness as a child. Um, and I'm not saying like I'm like this outlier. I think there's a lot of people that are like this. But I saw a, my neighbor's cello and I said, I want to play the cello. And my mom's like, do you even know what a cello was? And this was in sixth grade. And my parents had the financial resources and the time to get me to Dickinson. So I acknowledge that. Um, but neither one of my parents play a musical instrument, nor did they ever push me. So I want to make sure they know that <laughs> they're listening to this. Credit where credit's um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. No um, credit to you, But mom. I also think that's like one of the great things that Cassius has too is an amazing music program and like when I go hang out in the glee club I just get like warm all over schools in Philadelphia don't have music teachers and so the fact that kids have those opportunities and resources here at home is like so important to me as an educator and as a parent and as a citizen Um, but yeah I had that those opportunities and I do get information about family backgrounds Um, I would say that the in the IB program there are kids from all different types of backgrounds I mean one person I'm going to give a shout out to is Madison Mellinger whose family is not you know does not necessarily have the financial resources that I have and she's going to Princeton next year like it's that's a big deal right and again it's not about where she's going but the IB program and her own hard work and her own ideas made that happen right Right. and so like and she reached right but somebody also helped her um, do that right in terms of like you can't just get to Princeton on your own right you don't know where that is Um, but I do get information about family backgrounds I think one thing that I would I would say is that I think that the town is much poorer than people might get might acknowledge, um, say on, at the square right. or at you know Texas lunch or I don't know at wherever people hang out or Panera Bread where people tend to talk about random things and I overhear it. Um, kids are really struggling, families are really struggling. But as I said to Joe, I don't think that students in Chambersburg have a good framework for understanding how inequality operates. So if one's parent is working at a warehouse, I don't think kids have an understanding 
for the fact that working in a, in a warehouse is not really a stable job, nor is it a decent paying job. And so to think about like, where can we push into the school to have students understand how that happens so that when they go to the voting booth, they're voting for the person who is going to best represent their needs and interests. And I wish students had a better understanding of that. Um, I think in urban America, for whatever reason, they do have a better understanding of that. And those are in the schools that I work in. Um, particularly around race and racial inequality. I think like that's one thing that I would want to strengthen here in Chambersburg. So um, you want to get people kind of more attuned to the income inequalities here in Chambersburg. How would you go about doing that? Well, I mean, I think there's some really interesting things already happening with teachers. I mean, first of all, like I interviewed um, a principal who had his entire staff read evicted. I think that was at CAMS North. That's amazing. I mean, that's not happening in Philadelphia. People just assume that people know how evictions operate, even though we probably don't. Evicted was on the library shelf, which was really cool. And I mean, I'm not trying to like sell Matt Desmond's book on your podcast, but like that's pretty amazing. I've never seen that on a school library shelf, right? Just to have that awareness. Um, There's also been poverty simulations. Those things all matter. But my concern is that in Chambersburg, I think the teachers are really aware of economic inequality and not racial inequality. Mm -hmm. And so how do we push into that, right? I mean, it's hard. We, like many of us, grew up in a very segregated county, in a segregated town. And again, daily interactions, people when you're incredibly segregated, if if you looked at a map of Chambersburg, it's really segregated residentially. And so people don't interact, but also structurally, I don't think we talk about racial inequality as much as students might in a Philadelphia high school where they're reading James Baldwin and they're, you know, um, apprised to where's the Parks' more radical side. So I'm not saying it's perfect there, right? There's probably work to be done there, but around those issues, I would like to see more work so that students feel like they have a voice, particularly students of color. Joe, you've seen the demographic shift here. Uh, talk about that in 13 years. I mean, what have, what are some of the changes you've seen in terms of, you know, the kids that are showing up? Clearly, the Hispanic population has tripled in that period of time. So we've always had uh, a, a black population, when you look at the minorities of uh, 7 to 9%, still mm-hmm. that. Uh, and primarily based in town, but also in the townships. Hispanic population is clearly 22 to 28% now. Mm-hmm. It was always like maybe 5 to 10% when you were here. I mean, so that has uh, increased. And what it has done, I mean, the Hispanic folks are great. Uh, Latino, I should say, maybe what, the whole group. All right. The, but they have a little different priorities. And so it gives us struggles when it comes to the state laws that say you got to have a cohort graduation rate. And the, an example of that would be this. We have alternative schools. When we went, went to school for folks who, you know, basically had issues with, you know, they just weren't focused in school or they may have had a pregnancy or they might have some issue. Right. Today, our alternative school is for really the Latino who says, wait a minute, I just need three hours of school. I don't want to do any study halls. I don't want to do extracurricular activities. I want to graduate and I'm going to get straight A's or close. And then I'm moving on. They're going to work. Right. And they're working while they're in school. And, mo- and so the Sharp Building is now uh, one of our main alternative schools. And we offer classes there morning, noon, and e- evening, five days a week. And those students all have what they consider 15 to $20 an hour paying jobs full time. Right. And they're keeping their grades up, and but they don't want the traditional school. So that's been a really big change that I've seen here. That's interesting. That is so non-traditional to how we think about how the system works. Yes. And they've done it on their own. I mean... One of the reasons we have these kind of programs, the IB program, another program in a high school just like that is the ROTC program. Mm-hmm. It's the same exact concept. It's got every, every economic group in it, and 
it's serving a purpose. The children are all learning leadership, being focused, and many of them are going to the military, but not all of them. But they're all uh, focused for what they're doing at Pet Post High School. Right. That's another space where you would see a large mixing of, of diverse groups economically yes. and racially at the ROTC program at the high school. What do you think the impact of having more minority teachers would be? Oh, it'd be great. But that's difficult. It's hard to find them mm-hmm. and keep them here. Yeah, and I often think, like, we also need to work with what we have, too. I mean, like, yes, yes. absolutely. Growing but, around. like, oftentimes, even at universities, we talk a lot about hiring more faculty of color, which I totally support. But at the same time, we're all sitting around the table, so why aren't we doing something, right? So to right, think right. about um, how can we do that and how can we reflect it. And, it, I mean, it can start small. It doesn't have to be, like, this radical shift or this huge shift, right? But, like... I know um, a, f- a family friend, Jeannie Black, who teaches at Ben Chambers. Mm-hmm. She, for African American History mm-hmm. Month, was doing spirituals in her in her music class. That's a huge step forward, mm-hmm. right? And she was, you know, she's got to learn how to do that um, as a woman who didn't necessarily, maybe didn't know that, I and mean, maybe she did. I don't know, right? But like she was telling me that, and I was like, that's amazing, right? To to have that kind of um, that understanding that. The kids in front of you are the kids you have, and you need to address it in the in the present moment. So yes, I mean, obviously, there's tons of studies that show that having faculty of color matter for racial diversity and for supporting black and brown youth in schools. But at the same time, we have we already have a faculty there, and there could be there could be changes that seem right. minor but are major to a kid. Right. Use the resources you have. Right. What is perhaps the most interesting thing you have learned so far that has surprised you? You can take a moment if you need to. I know it's kind of a bigger question. In the interim, Joe, the, the magnet school, if I could ask about that. How yes. long has that been around? Uh, seven years. Seven years. And yes. is it succeeding? And that's another, that's another program that was put in for really to keep our dropout rate from increasing. Mm-hmm. Because when students hit ninth grade, if they don't see... You know how the old traditional high school was. All the all the good classes, or you might say the extracurricular classes, were taken up by the seniors and juniors. Mm-hmm. Freshmen didn't get any. Those students see no future other than academics. They drop out. Yeah. So the magnet, the magnet's been very successful. There's uh, to the point where there's questions about how the entrance is because we have waiting lists to get into it. And it's it's also a program that's designed for a student who uh, is somewhat of a loner, maybe not quite, not in the collaborative. Some of the students do choir, but the point is, it's not for all children. Right. The well, the iPad learning uh, should be for all children, but it just does not suit many children. We find that the children who do their homework do it between eleven and three in the morning. Uh, things that are you know, and they're into it, and they do everything, and they're all the students that get out of there have a focus also. Mm-hmm. So we need to. I mean, I think to judge the success of it would be this way. I think the board's talking about doubling that concept by putting another one of those in the high school mm-hmm. of, you know, a wing of the high school saying, okay, this will be a, a magnet focus maybe with a hospital since it's right there and there's a job for career for everybody at the hospital. And so it does a lot of neat things. Yeah, and for sure. It does. It, and so, yeah, it's very successful. Well, it's, I'm glad to hear that. Now I'm going to swing back to you and see if you got an answer for me. So, um, I think it would be, and I have like deep respect for educators and practitioners, anyone that works in a school. So I think anybody who does that work, it's the hardest work you one would ever do. Um, but I think here it's incredibly challenging um, because of the 
just diversity of students that you have in the school and the, and the enormous need that some of the students present with resources in the state of Pennsylvania that are woefully inadequate across the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's not surprising to me, but <clears throat> sometimes I'm here and I think, wow, this looks like a beautiful facility with the same challenges that Philadelphia has. Right. Um, or, um, you know, the brain drain is a huge problem in Franklin County. Like, I never came back. I mean, I said to Joe laughingly when we first met that when I was 18, I think my parents knew that was goodbye. Um, And so while I love these mountains, like, economically, like, what do kids do here? And I mean that for all kids, not just for kids like me, right? But that that's really challenging. Yeah, you know what they um, do? They move away and they come back. Yeah, that's what <laughs> that's I hear. in their 30s. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's true, That's exactly right. Yeah, so, I mean, that might happen. Neither my sister nor I came back, um, so I don't know. Oh, there's um, still time. Yeah, maybe. I don't know that our, our partners are coming back to Chambersburg, but I'll, I will ask mine when I get home. Probably not. Um I just think it's hard. The work that educators are doing is really difficult. And I think also one thing that is surprising that makes Chambersburg and this study different is that the school is a political linchpin in a small community in ways that it is not in a big urban city. Um, That if you decide to do something in a school that rubs against somebody here, it's a big rub. And that's really different. And that could be all kinds of different things, right? in Philadelphia, at the school that I work at, the student walkout on March 14th last year was mandated. And here, it was a risk. And I get that, like both from the students who walked out and the educators who decided that wasn't the best idea, right? Because this is a different kind of place than uh, a school in Philadelphia across the street from Temple University. And I think that's a, that, that makes the work that the administrators are doing incredibly challenging because they're trying to take care of kids the best that they possibly can. And I think that's true of all educators, but a lot of educators get to do that in a, in a more uh, protected and vacuous way than you do here. Um, because because it's, it's really seen as the center of the town in ways that when there's 800 high schools in a big city like New York City, true. no one knows what, a, what's happening in Queens yeah, at, yeah. I don't know, a, random high schools. You know, so. you're talking about c- people living in compressed spaces, so there's just a lot more going on in general. Now, to the idea of when things can be divisive, the title of your study is what? My current title? Yeah. Or the title, was it on, was it on that yes. GP? Oh, no. Oh, my mom's going to kill me. <laughs> Um, my title was a, is is Trump's children right now. Okay. And where were we going with that? Um, you had something in mind when you wrote yeah, that. Yeah, I was thinking of getting a grant. Um, okay, <laughs> what would I have in mind? I'm sorry. I'm like, I wasn't expecting that question. Um, so after the 2016 election, I decided to title the study Trump's children. Um because I actually think that kids in urban and rural America have a lot more in common than the political divisiveness that happened after the 2016 election made us think. So I sit in my home in Manhattan all the time and hear about, you know, quote unquote, those rural kids or those rural folks or those rural residents. And I know those rural residents. And as I said to Joe, like those rural residents raised me, Um, either my parents or people like Jeannie Black, whose house I was at all the time as a kid. And so my hope would be that the study could make us really think about that. Like, I don't really care who people vote for at the end of the day. I just want them to be educated about what they're voting for and what they're what they're arguing for. And I want them, you know, what I've also learned in Chambersburg is that um, 
politicians aren't really listening to their constituents and constituents also don't talk back as much. So I would like to have rural kids talk back a little bit more, um, which is what I titled my presentation in upcoming conferences, Rural, rural Youth Talk Back. Um, my students in Philadelphia that I work with, that's just kind of in the ethos of Philadelphia. When we don't like things in Philadelphia, when I live there, you just kind of march. You just protest. Right. You walk down right. Broad Street. You know, I mean, we protested at the school district. Joe probably is really happy he wasn't there because I was outside protesting at the school district a lot. That's not that's not the ethos in Chambersburg. When I ask kids, do you think you're political? Most of them say no. Correct. Even though they have ideas about how the government should help them and how politics is or is not operating well, right? They have ideas, but that is such a dirty word in Franklin County. Politics. Um, pol- being a political person mm-hmm. or, you know, and, and I also think it's really gendered. So that's one of the things that I've, I've has been a new discovery um, in thinking through that is that mm-hmm. young women in particular are very remiss to say they're political, um, which is interesting to me because I feel like I was political because I grew up here. Um, and the school secretary remembered me as a high school student, um, which I, you know, so thinking about like, the thing ways, or a bad thing. um, she remembered me, let's just say that. Um, okay. she, she, so there. I'm just, I, I think cause I felt like I knew people and there is a social fabric in a small town that is very different. I mean, you say people live on top of each other, but in New York, we like literally live on top of each other. That's so, what I meant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm just like thinking about how we could be, we have these connections and yet the minute we talk about politics in a space like Franklin County, we're all, many of us, I shouldn't say all, but many of us are very muted. Um, I think to that, that point in this community, my take on that is there's kind of a politeness that we all kind of yes. live with. I would agree with you on that. Now, if we move into the city, people are grinding against each other on the daily. And so you tend to become more of a raw human being, more direct. I've lived in mm-hmm. cities. I know what this means. And so that's just my take on it, where people, we don't really want to ruffle each other's feathers. Have a nice day. You know, right. good to see you. Whereas in, you know, you know, Washington Square or something, you can get into with somebody over politics, you know, mm-hmm. pretty quickly. That's true. But on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, I feel like we just assume everybody thinks the same thing. We don't actually talk that much either. You know what I mean? So like, too too. I mean, I'm just saying like, it's, 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 a, it's a kind of like deference around it. Um, and I guess I wanted people to think about what this president means to kids, right? Because I think, like, there are a lot of youth across this country who, when this president opens his mouth and says, build a wall, that that has a serious valence for for a large contingency of our children, and that that is maybe not a moral and upstanding idea of what a president should be saying, right? And, And so, like, maybe immigration is a huge problem in the United States, Maybe one thinks that, which I'm happy to discuss that with someone. Um, but perhaps we need to think about um, how, st- how students are really thinking about it. That's and a real-life problem at the high school. I mean, every day we get in, the students coming from the border. I mean, today, El Salvador, Haiti. I mean, they're coming in, and, they, and some of them are seniors. Just last week we had, and, and they go to the high school, and you know what the thinking is in this community with yeah. the wall. And you don't, they're isolated a little bit. But they do get opened up when they're here a while. But uh, it's it, I see that. And I would think there's a humanization issue there. That when you meet people from El Salvador, it's no longer an abstraction. It's now a human being that you're interacting yes. with. Which I think that can change a lot of the dynamics, political or mm-hmm. otherwise. Exactly. Coming from the urban perspective, I mean, what? how do the, the kids there look at... At our communities, do they see us as monolithic, as you know, simple-minded rubes, or yes, um, yeah? I that's mean, that's a failure on their part. Then 
I, I mean, I agree, 100%. but it's also a failure on our part, right? I mean, in terms of, I'm just saying, we no one's talking to anyone, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, like, how many people from the high school, I mean, if we talk to people, if I walk down the street and I ask people what they think of Philadelphia or New York City, I mean... I know what they're going to say, right? Like, why would you want to... I mean, I get it every time I come home. Why do you want to live there? You don't have a backyard, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it's it's the same things. Um, I think we have, like, gross misunderstandings of, like, what you were just saying, that we're all human beings. And I think at the end of the day, every family wants the very best for their children, regardless of where they live. And perhaps if we just embrace each other a little bit more, and I don't mean to say that in some hokey kind of way, um, no, but I hear all kinds of things thought. when I come home about where I live that are completely misleading and misguided. So do you feel um, like you kind of are an ambassador? For I'm like rural shifting America? all the time, Pete. Like I, uh, my whole life uh, has been shifting between two spaces, uh-huh. um, which I feel like all the time. Um, I don't know if I'm an ambassador for rural America because I think there's a lot of things that could change here to make it better. Um, but I think I am a corrective for when people say things here and there, right? So when people in Philadelphia routinely say um, it's the racist in Harrisburg that caused these problems, particularly around gun control, which is a huge thing, right? I, I say to them, well, I know responsible gun owners in my hometown who actually probably would support that kind of legislation if they understood the problems. But I also think, like, now that I'm getting the public opinion alerts on my phone randomly for the past few days, I think people should also, like, look around and think about what happens in this county and thinking yeah. about gun control and, and what how that matters, right? Sure. And what's interesting is of the places that I've been most nervous in a school, it's actually in Franklin and Fulton County, uh, not in Philadelphia, where, really? like, for sure, huh. for sure. Yeah. Let's talk about that. What made you nervous? Um, things happen here that don't happen in, in, in city schools. And I don't mean to say that in a derogatory way, but... Right. Um, Give us an example. Doors are locked. Uh, because there's oh. nervousness around around gun violence. Right. Like yeah. I've never been in a school where doors are locked. I've never been in a school, and I'm not. I'm not. Again, I'm not faulting anyone, but like, the high school has you know protections on the doors. They need that, right? Like there's reasons why. Yeah. Um, but after Parkland, I was here, and I was in Fulton County, and I was in Philly the day before, and in Philadelphia, everything seemed pretty right. pretty standard. Like it was just a normal day. We don't have metal detectors at the school that I work at. Um, it's an exam school, so it's a special admit school. So it was a normal day. Um, nobody was talking about heightened awareness of gun violence. I was in Caches the next day. So I was in Philly, then I was in Chambersburg, and then I was in a school in Fulton County. And in Chambersburg, there was definitely a heightened awareness yes. around gun control. I think that's really. I think that's really understandable on one level from an educator perspective, but I also think I don't want children to be going to a school where they're scared and teachers to be working in a school where they're scared. I think that we need to have a big conversation about that. Like that's something that's a little surprising to me, to be honest. And then going to Fulton County and literally not being able to get in any doors because they're locked out of precautions. That, that is not a kind of environment that I would want my children or really any children to be learning in or as a teacher want to be working in and again i understand the precautions but that is a surprise like that's another surprise right well that's also i think one of the reasons if i'm correct me if i'm wrong that they didn't do a walkout uh because of fear of because that as you pointed out is one of the most vulnerable moments yes when the kids are bussing and getting getting so they did the walkout in the courtyard i mean which was kind of compromised but that's that was allowed that's exactly right. Yeah, that's interesting. Tell us some about the differences you saw in in opinions, attitudes, and inequality through Fulton County 
uh, you know, some of the more rural is. I mean, your, your neighbors may think we're rural, but we know the definition of rural. That's what people in Fulton County say about us. <laughs> um, really? Yeah, I mean, I've only been over there a few days. Um, I have family friends. My dad used to work at JLG. Uh, yeah, Fulton County residents say, you know, everybody in Chambersburg thinks we're the real rural, um, which I find to be kind of interesting. Uh, you can't win, you know? It's like you can't be anywhere. Um I don't know. I think what's interesting is that when kids see injustice everywhere, they speak up about it. And I saw that in Fulton County, and I've seen that in Chambersburg, and I see that in Philly. And so I think what's interesting is even when what they might think they believe politically to be true, when it, as you said earlier, when it hits someone at home, um, there was a you know transgender concerns um, in chamber in in Franklin and Fulton County. They're they're students stand up for their peers who are transgender. That is incredible. Um, that's surprising to me. Like, that, right? That's a major cultural shift that's happening in this country. Totally, yes. but it's yes. happening here, right? And so I'm just saying, like, when I read about transgender, like, norms or education or policies in, like, the research that I do, it, rural America is never mentioned in, in any of that, right? And so that is really interesting to me. I think students don't have an understanding of what government welfare is. So I've talked to students here and in Fulton County who have talked about, you know, receiving food stamps and housing assistance, but then they're against welfare. Well, those are forms of welfare. So are the like mortgage rebates that many of us get on our housing. Not me anymore because I live in an apartment. But I'm just saying like that's all social welfare. And so I think as I was coming down on the train today, I was thinking about how here people speak in terms of entitlements instead of benefits. That's really important. And I'm not saying everyone well, that's, in, in... Yeah, that's, that's framing done by uh, one of the political parties very intentionally. Totally. Although the Democrats are also not so great on that either. I'm just saying like... It should be a benefit to go to college if you're qualified. And when colleges, even like the one I work at, cost $65,000 a year, and middle class is considered $200,000 of two-parent family, I mean, that should be outrageous to all of us, right? I mean, and yet the Democrats are not really doing very much around college accessibility in terms of like really making it accessible for students right. and families. They're not doing very much around childcare, right? I mean, I have two children in Manhattan. It is incredibly unaffordable, to put it mildly, um, to raise children today um, in the ways that I was raised, right? right? So thinking through that, I think, is really important, right? And trying to get students to shift their perspectives. The other thing that I think, and I don't mean to keep saying what's surprising, and I see this everywhere, but particularly here at Caches, is that when we want to talk about poverty or inequality, we go to another country. So students have a deep yes. understanding of like water inaccessibility in South Africa, which is a real problem, but it's also a problem probably in houses here in Franklin County. It's a problem in houses in Fulton County. Um, it's a problem in Philadelphia. It's a problem in Flint, Michigan, as many of us know, right? So like to think about like, why do we always look to, I don't know, Argentina or Uruguay to like talk about inequality it's when it's because Americans, here. we like to pretend that everyone is middle class or above. Totally, but it happens here more than it does in any other school that right. I've been in. So I'm just saying, like, that's something that was interesting to me to think about. Students have a pretty well robust understanding of poverty in places like South America and Africa and those two continents, sure. but they don't really. Some of them don't really understand like what happens right here in their backyard. So, do, uh, have you come to understand what poverty rates are here, for the sake of the listeners, to understand where we are? Where we are here in Franklin County? Yeah. No. Okay. Do you, Joe, have an understanding of, I think one of the, the indicators was how many kids are taking uh, free lunch? Oh, yeah. In that case, that's a good, and you asked about the 13 years. Of, that's another area that's, uh, we've increasingly grown impoverished. We have like 55, almost 60% of our whole student body of 10,000 that's in that category. 
free or reduced lunch. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, in the last decade, only half that. Interesting. Yes. So that has, you know, increased. I mean, so you have that. And we have a combination of urban and rural poor. Right. Downtown and then outside. Yes. Mm -hmm. And both of them require different needs in schools. And uh, but you, and it's interesting to hear you say about when they look at poor, they don't see themselves. We do a good job of making the kids. That means that our community, I think, does a good job, whether it's the parenting or the whoever, the elders, the teachers, uh, with their whole child. I think that that's probably not a bad thing, really. I mean, in my opinion. So that means the situation they're in, they're satisfied with. Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't give them the... I, I agree that it would be nice to see them have more... Uh, drive to succeed and move out of the area, but a lot of them don't want to do that. And they come back, you're right. Yeah. Because it is a nice area to live in. I mean, you used an example, you talked about, they, they, there's pride. I think that's the area we missed. We, we just had a big band concert at the high school this weekend or a competition with Color Guard from all the bands from everywhere. Tri-State area came in. The school was packed. And we have on camera one of our children disciplining a child from another school. So we brought the child down to find out what he was doing. He said, well, this kid was kicking the walls. And he said, I went up to him and said, listen, we don't do that here. You know, but that's the kind of thing that's a neat example. He didn't have to do that. It's just a weekend, you know. That's, I think they have there's some pride. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's a good thing right there. Yes. I feel like they can take ownership and, you know, say, no, that's not what we do here. I think also the educators cultivate that, too, in the school. I mean, I think particularly Brad Ocker, I mean, and, and many of the other teachers, but their, their signs and... And slogans all over caches about. It's exciting to see the children yeah. who are not conformist not being picked on. I had folks come through today from South Korea, and uh, they asked about that. Or you know, do other children pick on the ROTC uniform children, or the children who have the different colored hair? So I says, no, we don't tolerate that here. But I don't know that we have to worry about that. I don't see it. Oh, that's My husband great always hear. says that about Chambersburg. What's that? My husband always says when he comes here, he says everyone is so kind. And it's when he true. goes to my high school reunion, I, I agree. It is true. Yeah, totally no, it is true. true. Absolutely. So, are you, when your study's done, do you think you'll be able to provide solutions? I hope. I mean, isn't that the, I mean, I think that's the point of, I mean, I know that's not the point of everyone's research, but that's the point of mine. Um, I mean, I don't want to be prescriptive, right? I don't live here. So, mm -hmm. I would leave that also in the hands of the folks that do live here and who are doing the work. Mm -hmm. um, but my hope is that by shedding light on the challenges that we can make changes here, but also like have better deliberations across geographical places, right? Mm -hmm. So that maybe my friends in Manhattan can understand that what they think about places like Chambersburg or It sounds or like Iowa. we need an exchange program. I mean, we have, I have a friend who does that, <laughs> so uh, which true. is pretty cool. Uh, a friend of mine, Joe Rogers at Columbia, does an exchange program. He grew up in rural Maine. He's a biracial... Uh, man who is an educator and activist in Harlem, and he brings kids from his hometown in rural Maine down to Harlem and vice versa. That's it's an incredibly productive and awesome program. Um, but yeah, we also just need to be more like open-minded, right, um, about what people think and not be so quick to judge people. So you talked earlier about how the kids, you know, they want to challenge things, and they are a little open, more open-minded when they're younger. Mm -hmm. Do we feel like views harden over time? And people become less, say, intellectually willing to consider uh, opinions not their own or embrace ideas that maybe challenge them? I mean, I guess and I, I said this to Joe when, when we were talking last time about the study. <clears throat> I think that 
if you're not given the opportunity to practice it, it's really hard to do. And most schools don't do that. I'm saying to deliberate, what? to deliberate, to like weigh other opinions, to actually right. be challenged by someone. Mo- most places don't do that well. I mean, most education writ large um, doesn't do that well, right? Most children are sitting in rows. I- I've had students in Philadelphia tell me even in March and April, they don't even know the names of all the kids in their classes, which I'm like, how is that possible? You only have like 25, right. 30 kids in here. How do you-? They're like, well, we don't talk, right? So mm-hmm. like, if you don't talk, I mean, that's fundamentally what I'm interested in is is the spaces where kids have the opportunity to talk and the spaces where they don't. And I think that has to happen in schools, all schools. Um, and I don't think it's happening as often in rural schools as it is in other spaces. I think journalism has a part in that, that there's not a newspaper dropped off on everybody's doorstep. I think literacy has a part in that. There's no bookstore in Chambersburg, right? Like I have in terms of like what that Northwood is. Northwood Books. I was told Northwood Books, right. I'm sorry. There is, there is a bookstore in Chambersburg, but there's not a plethora of them. No. Um, that makes it really different where you, you know, and I'm not saying there aren't spaces, but people tend to move in their own bubbles. Um, and so if they're not taught from an early age how to break out of those bubbles, um, which is why I was joking earlier, I've always been shifting. That's like my life story, which is probably why I'm like, I want to know why someone thinks that all the time. And my parents and my husband and my close friends laugh at me all the time. Like, you really want to know that? I'm like, yeah, I actually do. I want to hear why somebody believes something so different than what I do, because that's where real learning happens. So yeah, I think that I think that does harden with time. But at the same time, we're not even giving kids the opportunity to do that. What I said to Joe is like, I think his point is really valid, that it's wonderful that kids feel cared for as a whole person. But I also think when your parents are working at a warehouse and you have four kids and you're living in public housing, you should understand how inequality operates in America so you can fight for you and your family. And if you don't understand that and you don't have the practice to articulate, that you're kind of annoyed and angry that your parents are in a different position than mine were, then that's that's a problem for our democracy, right? And that, that I think is really fundamental, is giving kids the opportunity to do that in spaces where they all have to come together. And the space where they all come together is our public schools. I mean, that, that is the heart of it. Right. I guess I agree with everything you said. I, I, an idea occurred to me as you were talking is that do we almost need... I don't know how to phrase this, but media training, teaching young people how to consume media and information so they don't end up in a channel or a bubble. Because I think that we were talking before the show about where the country's Mm -hmm. headed. And I feel like, you know, people have fallen into their echo chambers and they're not coming out. And I think it will take another generation that says, I'm going to challenge assumptions I have and I'm going to challenge assumptions you have. And we're going to have that dialogue rather than. I'm plugged into MSNBC or I'm plugged into Fox and that's it. You know, it's game over. What do you think about that? I mean, I think so. But I also think like we just also have to give students the opportunity to just talk openly about what they actually believe. And that requires a lot more than just media training. Right. So I'm not saying I'm not hopeful, um, but it requires the kind of thing like a Socratic seminar or the IB, like theories of knowledge. Every time I talk to any person about like where do they learn to deliberate and have discourse like that, theories of knowledge. We should be giving every child in America a theories of knowledge class. It's not about media literacy. It's about having a position, having some kind of evidence or substantive ideas to back it up and articulating it. We rarely ask students to do that in schools, all of them. Even at Columbia, we rarely ask that. Um, in terms of like actually asking students to come up with their own idea. That is really hard thinking and it is really hard teaching. And the challenge is when we have standardized tests dictating the norms of the day, right. it is really hard for teachers to do that work. And I understand that, but I think our democracy is more important than our test scores, right? And so that's what it requires. And I think, 
yeah, we need media literacy, but I also think we put a lot of emphasis on people hanging out in their bubbles. Um, when kids are understand how to access and digest information, they don't live in bubbles. And I think a lot of the students at Caches are living testaments to that. When you talk to them, they're seeking out information in ways that I never, ever did in high school because I didn't have access to things like the internet. So maybe they could teach us, or maybe they could run a workshop on how that happens. Yeah. Um, because they think we're missing the boat that everybody's watching Fox News or MSNBC or just reading the New York Times or USA right. Today. Um, and we need to support local journalism, absolutely. That has to be like front and center of, of all of our conversations. Totally agree. Well, all right, uh, we're out of time, but I want to thank you both for coming on the program. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you here. Good luck in your retirement, Joe. Thank you. On to new adventures, and good luck with your paper and everything ahead of you, Erica. Thanks. I'll just jump in and say find us online at progresspod.org and send us an email to uh, progresspod at gmail.com. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.